You are tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Throughout October, we've heard about the campaign to stop the spread of the little fire ant. It has taken hold in places on the Big Island and has spread to other islands as well. It is toughest to control in remote areas. We decided to check the progress of a pilot project on Maui, where two years ago, the Maui Invasive Species Committee began aerial treatment using a bait aimed at sterilizing the ant queen. We talked to Fire Ant Coordinator Brooke Menken and Education Specialist Serena Fukushima this week. They were happy to share the good news. The project was able to continue throughout the pandemic. Actually, we were able to continue pretty much uninterrupted. We did 13 treatments, roughly six weeks apart from starting in October of 2019 all the way up into May of 2021. Wow, that's impressive. But you were able to power through and and, uh, keep with the plan. Yeah, we were able to follow COVID protocols and safely conduct operations without interruption. And so uh, what's the report from the field? How's it been working? Well, I'm extremely pleased with the results. As you know, the last time we talked, I had explained that we needed to go out and conduct a survey to be able to assess how the treatments have been working. And that is no small feat. The area that we needed to survey is about 175 acres, and it ranges from sea level up to 1,200-foot elevation. It's about two miles long, and it's in the rugged East Maui watershed, uh, dense rainforest out there. You know, oftentimes to, to do a survey what we need to do is uh, evenly space our samples throughout that area. And so we had our crew out there, about 28 people. And these guys and gals, they went out and they had to, at times, crawl over and under how bush, hack their routes through dense overhead luhe and cane grass, They had to climb up and down stream embankments and wade through the water and through mud. And we got about three-quarters of the way done. We just need to go in and fill in some of the gaps. But what we're finding is over 3,000 samples, 95% of those samples came back with, with no ants at all. And that's very different from when we started before. So there's very few little fire ants left and they're located in just one small portion. So what we plan to do is to redraw the area that we are treating with the helicopter, and it will be much smaller, and continue treatments there. But overall, the change has been very, very big, very big change from the infested area before to what it is now. Like you mentioned, the terrain is so rough, so it's kind of like against all odds, but um, you may be on to something, and, and if it does prove to be successful, that we can maybe, you know, share those ideas and figure out, you know, where we could do that on other islands. Absolutely. We've already spoken to teams internationally that are very interested in this work and explained how we set it up and what we're doing and working with them to share our mana'o on everything that we've learned in this process. And Serena, I don't know, jump in here. I mean, you know, you outreach uh, to the community. You know, why is it so important that we connect and and share this information? Our Nahiku infestation was actually discovered by our Hana Maikonia crew because ants were literally raining down on them and stinging them, and they, you know, reported it back to our team, which is how we found this population. And it's typically how the rest of our community members that make these reports to us are experiencing that they know they're there through these things. But, you know, majority of our our population reports for little fire ants here on Maui have been reported to us by the community. So it's really important that if, you know, people are having suspect ants in their area, if they are getting stung by ants, that they've reported over to MISC and We have free ant collection kits that we send people and give away that they can go home and really easily, you know, put a little bit of peanut butter or mayo on a stick and put it in an area that they suspect might have little fire ants and send it back to us and we can identify it and let them know if they do or they don't. And then MISC will come and help to treat any positive little fire ant identification. So 
we really, you know, our treatments are working. We're feeling really positive about the work we've been doing. It's just getting people to let us know, getting the public to report, you know, any of these things and really just making it a habit as well. If you get stung by an ant, if you have, you know, potted plants that you're bringing home or construction materials that may have been sitting around and coming onto your property to, you know, make this a habit. So just like how we take off our slippers before we go inside a house, as soon as you get materials like that, get in that habit of testing for ants and letting us know if What's the response been like so far this month with this campaign? Sure, the response has been great. October is Stop the Ant Month, the statewide campaign, and we are you know, working with our other partners at Invasive Species Committees throughout the state to raise awareness and let people know about little fire ants and getting them to take samples and collect ants. We've been getting you know, lots of samples coming in throughout the state, and we also have a giveaway raffle that we have people entered in to make it a little more fun. But so far, the response has been really positive. And have you discovered new areas where these ants are burrowing in, settling in? Not this month. So that is, you know, it, it could be a no news is good news. Mm-hmm. But again, we you know, still need people out there testing and sending in those samples. And then, Brooke, uh, what can you tell us? Because, you know, I think the weather forecasters are predicting a a wetter winter, how does that work, uh, you know, as you start plotting out where you're going to be uh, doing the aerial treatments? Well, if it's raining really heavily, we can't do our treatments or surveys. The the raindrops are like missiles to these tiny little ants, right? So they hide. If it's lightly raining, we can, we can do surveys. And if we're using a gel bait, which we use from the helicopter, we are able to treat in light rain. So We've been lucky so far with our helicopter treatments. We were able to finish nearly all of them. The weather cooperated, and so we've got our fingers crossed going forward that we'll be able to find that weather window and continue our operations. So what can you tell us about the area that you'll be targeting there in Nahiku? So the area that we're going to be targeting is comprised of two different parts, essentially, where we found ants remaining, which is a very small area, and also in the areas that we just cannot get into. It is a very dense how bush, and without a bulldozer, it's essentially untouchable. And so we're going to continue to treat those areas since they are unknowns, and we have to make assumptions that our survey around those areas and the places that we can get in there will be an indicator of what's happening inside there. And is there any indication that the aerial treatments are affecting, I don't know, another species or any plants? That's a good question. So really the only things that are going to be affected are the things that are attracted to and consume the bait. And so those are ants. There are over 60 species of ants in Hawaii. All of them are non-native alien species and most are damaging. So we're not worried about non-target impacts on other ant species. Things people worry about are bees and aquatic life. The bees do not eat the bait, and there were abundance of bees observed by field crew in the field and a lot of aquatic life. I actually asked the crews to make observations and take GPS points when they saw things like mosquito fish, crawdads, dragonflies and damselflies, which rely on the waterways, and mosquito larvae, and we have well over 100 observations of these from Malkin and Mackay in the streams. And so I I don't think that there has been really any impact on non-target species. So no unintended consequence as far as we know? None that I know of, yep. What we would like to do in certain situations using a helicopter on large infestations would be a real godsend and game changer. There are places where you couldn't really practically use a helicopter, of course, and that's around people, houses, etc. And so that's also often where the little fire ant infestations show up. But for large natural areas, using a helicopter would really change the game for little fire ant control, particularly for some of the other islands where on Maui, this is our largest infestation and we're hammering away at it and things are going well. And so there's not a great need for helicopter work here on Maui beyond that. But the other islands, 
they could really use the help at this point. And then refresh my memory again. So what kind of bait are we using, and when was it first discovered there in Nahiku? The infestation in Nahiku was first discovered in 2014. Like Serena said, our Myconia crew was out there doing work, and they just got lit up. The ants mm-hmm. rained down and stung them up, and that's how we discovered that infestation. During the work that we just recently did, nobody got any stings. Wow. So awesome. that's one indicator of how things are going. And then the spread of it, wasn't it by the river or something? And, if, and the, you, you folks feared that that was how it was being spread over a large area? Right. If you look at a map, the infestation is uh, linear. It's very long, almost two miles long. And what we believe is that they were introduced, Malka, around 1,000 feet at a residence, and they got the infestation spread and got to the stream and then was washed downstream all the mm-hmm. way to the ocean. Okay. And then uh, anything else, Serena, you think that uh, the public should know? We are just about wrapping up Stop the Ant Month. But, you know, again, if people are interested in um, testing for ants, they can give us a call at 573-MISC or visit stoptheant.org to request a free collection kit. We also have kits in over 50 locations throughout Maui County in libraries, veterinary clinics, hardware stores, places like that to make it easy to pick up. And then also as a part of the Arbor Day Week celebration next week with the Maui Nui Botanical Gardens, we're going to be giving away about 1,300 ant collection kits with every tree that the gardens are giving away. So kind of a fun partnership to pass out, you know, get native trees out into people's yards as well as ant, ant collection kits in their hands. That was Serena Fukushima of the Maui Invasive Species and also Brooke Minkin uh, talking about the encouraging results from the experimental aerial treatment of the little fire ants on Maui. Uh, Brooke says that the bait is said to be non-toxic to the ants but meant to be sterile to the queens. For links to learn more about the invasive ant, check out our website later today. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up is your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're remembering a local author and personality whose name will always be associated with Halloween in Hawaii. Many families still enjoy the tradition of dimming the lights and having someone read ghost stories. And this writer's books are perfect for the occasion. He was an avid collector of spooky tales. And Hawaii, with so many intersecting cultural traditions, is a rich resource of material. He's the author of Obake Files, Ghostly Encounters in Supernatural Hawaii, the Chicken Skin series, which includes tales of fireballs, night marchers, visions of Pele, phantom hitchhikers, calling and choking ghosts, supernatural beings, many huni, haunted houses, and other paranormal doings. And if those aren't enough to get you in the Halloween mood, well, at least we tried. So who was this much-admired local author? Don't let it haunt you. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people he got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com.
It is American Archives Month, and every Thursday this October, a new collection of Hawaiian chants and mele have been released online at the Hawaii State Archives. The digital project has allowed broad public access to forgotten culture and art. And while the treasures have been safely tucked away in the state archives for decades, they are being shared, much to the delight of our kapuna and teachers of dance and music. We share a conversation that we had this week with Kumuhula Pohaisuza and musician Walter Kawaiaya. They expressed how much it means to have easy access to this history as they work to pass it on. But first we start with State Archivist Adam Jensen. Archives Month this year has provided us a really interesting opportunity to go into our collection and highlight some of the mele that we have throughout some of the manuscript collections in our Hawaiiana Rare Book Collection. You know, this is an area that we normally don't focus efforts on, yet there's such a rich amount of information contained in that. This gave us a really wonderful opportunity in a virtual environment to put out you know, thousands of pages of material that have never been publicly accessible online before. And you've been releasing this, what, every Thursday? Every Thursday, we focused on a different manuscript collection that we have to highlight some of the mele that are found within that collection that you know, we feel are being underutilized by cultural practitioners that we're hoping can help shape the way that they focus and execute on their practice. What's being released this week? So this week we have a manuscript collection that is kind of generically referred to as Hawaiian chants and mele. And from what we can understand from our history files is these were original mele that were handwritten in the late 1860s, 1870s, and submitted for publication into the newspaper. So they're primarily mele inoa and kanikau, so naming chants and death chants. They're trying to memorialize friends and family and make sure that the rest of Hawaii knows who these people are, what they did, what they accomplished. And so it's a very interesting look back to Hawaii's history. So we have a couple of kumu joining us today. Pohai Suza, what does uh, having access to these documents mean to you? Well, it has been so valuable. We have looked at some of these documents and seen some of these melee that, like Adam had said, we have never, ever seen before. Some of them have never been published before. And so all of these new discoveries have just incited a lot of enthusiasm on the parts of not only myself, but on other kumuhula that we have had come in and look at these. And so some of these mele were hoping, well, that we know that Adam has given out to some of our kumu and they have taken it and breathed life back into all of these words. It must be really neat to see it come alive. Yeah, it sure is. You know, like I said, it would have been lost into Never Never Land, and here we are being able to, like I said, bring life back into these melee. It's just amazing, and it's inspiring, and it's just exciting. And Walter, you know, what's it been like for you as a musician when you see these documents being shared in our community? Well, you know, as a musician, you know, and growing up and, you know, performing and learning and teaching alongside Kumuhula, the likes of Pohai Suza, I mean, I have to say, first of all, as a musician, musicians, you know, we, we don't necessarily belong to halal as, as hula dancers and kumu are. And so they, they tend, as a credit to them, they do a lot more research than most musicians. I mean, that's pretty much a, a reality and a fact. However, with that being said, you know, when, when my eyes were first open to this, and, and as Bohai said, there were four or five other kumu from the different islands that were involved, and we met uh, periodically uh, via the Zoom f- uh, platform with Adam. You know, just sitting in and listening to them as they talked about these chants and melee, as Bohai indicated, and they would discover new material 
there were in, in some of these, you know, names, place names or places that we don't necessarily use today, for example, that were used in latter times, brings to life new information. So as a musician, my connection to the State Archives goes back 50 years. I mean, I started as a 20-year-old doing a genealogical research assignment for my family. I was taking a course at the University of Hawaii. And uh, over the, the span of these 50 years, my involvement, and more in recent times, back in 2018, I got involved as a volunteer, helping uh, to do digitizing of these original records. But I think, you know, the the message I would have for fellow musicians or young musicians coming up, the lesson for us is the resource that the Hawaii State Archives is just invaluable. There's information. I mean, I could go down there today looking for my great-great-grandmother and go down rabbit holes that <laughs> takes me away from genealogical research. And before you know it, I'm looking at documents of a well-known musician or group and something that occurred back in the early 1900s. And those are the kind of rabbit holes. But those are good rabbit holes to go down to, especially for someone like myself. But over the course of these 50 years, my research there has taken me beyond genealogy. If I'm learning a new song and I want more background and information, the archives is invaluable because you can look place names, photographs of places that the melee might be speaking about that you know, you would never get anywhere else. And so these things just add as a musician when you're trying to learn a new song and you're going to want to perform the song, you're going to want to have as much background knowledge and information about the melee when you're out there performing it, just like a hula dancer does. So the archives is an invaluable resource to, to gather and to learn. Yes, and Poha, I'm sure, you know, when you go and you teach the dancers and you perform the dances out at the locations around the islands, I mean, if you can offer them more depth, you know, it just makes it such a richer experience. Yeah, I'll give you an example. In fact, it just happened this past week. I was browsing through the photograph collection and came upon George Bacon's collection. And in that collection was a beautiful picture of this woman we call Auntie Nana. Her name is Lenny Kalama. But, you know, in her younger day, and she was, a, she was next to this pahu. And I recognized that pahu. It was made by Timothy Montgomery, locally a Montgomery's husband. And it was given to Auntie Mikey. This particular pahu got lost. It happened at a performance at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, and somebody was supposed to pick up the pahu and forgot, and when they went back, the pahu was gone. But just seeing this photograph of Auntie Nana with this pahu gave me an opportunity to talk to some of my women who I have unikied and talking about this pahu that is so rare and has disappeared, and it allowed me a way to bring this story up to them so that they can carry on and talk about, you know, this to perhaps their next generation when they start teaching their students. And it's just something in our hula genealogy that we, you know, we can share. But it's just Something, again, not only the melee, but the photographs that are in the archives, recognizing some of these people, some of the old musicians that are no longer with us, but their photographs are there in the state archives. You know, like they say, it's worth a thousand words. The photograph is worth mm. a thousand words. And for them to be able to, you know, get a visual of who these people are that we have learned about in the melee. It's just wonderful. Yeah, it's priceless. <laughs> you know, I have an interesting, uh, listening to Poha, I just brought back a memory of, a, of an experience that I had as a result of, you know, the archives. So in those early years, 70, the year was 70, 71, I was doing genealogical research. And one day I came across on the front page 
of the Honolulu Advertiser, and I think the year was 1924. And first page, second page, third page, all in Hawaiian, with pictures of this this woman who was 101 years old, had passed away. Well, not speaking Hawaiian, I had to get this translated, and the shot of it was, this was my mo'oku alhau, because this woman who had passed away was Kamaka Stillman, and she, you know, her whole genealogy and her entire history and all of the stories that went with it, and there were mele as well included in that, and Kavena Pukui had translated this for me. You know, as a 21-year-old, I was super excited to know this, and this is my family. Well, fast forward some 20 years later, I have a grandson that's born, and so he's given the name uh, Kekaulele Anaiole, coming from his ancestor, the great Kohala chief Naiole. And so... He attends Kamehameha schools, and I think it was between his third and fourth grade year. They had a book project. And the short of it was, because he came home and I shared all of these stories with him, he ended up writing this story as his book project. And his father, my son, who's an art illustrator, happened, you know, did the artwork. Well, the short of it was, that project ended up at the publishing company, Kamehameha Publishing. And it, they made it their priority publication for that year, and the book was published in 2010 to uh, in commemoration of the 200th uh, year of the unification of the Hawaiian Islands by Kamehameha. Nice. And Very so nice. this whole thing happened, and as I reflect back on that, none of that would have happened to my grandson. None of that would have happened to, the, to our family if I hadn't started just showing up at the archives one day and just start do something, look for something, whatever it is, and you're going to be able to find, as Bohai shared, you know, she's looking for this one thing, and then she sees a story about this pahu drum, and then before you know it, she's going down this other rabbit hole. Yes. <laughs> like I said, though, they're all good rabbit holes to go down to. Yeah, serendipity. And, you know, Adam, I'm just going through, looking at this collection, the Paul Markham Khan Collection. There's the Coronation Hula Program. There is uh, the Hymn of Kamehameha I. There's a collection of songs composed or arranged by the Queen, including Aloha Oi. It, it's really just truly an amazing collection of knowledge. You know, the Ike that's contained within this building boggles the imagination on its, in its breadth and depth. And, and I'm glad you brought up Her Majesty's music because on our social media, Facebook and Instagram sites, we're posting a photo every day of a location or an individual that inspired one of Her Majesty's mele. And so you can participate mm-hmm. in some of that experience as well. Well, we thank you for joining us and spotlighting some of the wonderful treasures available uh, to all of us now, thanks to uh, the digital project. Any final thoughts? Just please experience this. Join us either online at our social media sites on Facebook or Instagram at Hawaii State Archives or on our website at ags.hawaii.gov forward slash archives. That was State Archivist Adam Jensen, Kumuhula Pohai Souza, and musician Walter Kawaiaia. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy lunch and Sunday brunch at the open-air Homa Cafe, featuring a menu of island-style fare and refreshments. Details at honolulumuseum.org. On the next Fresh Air, what we know so far about the efforts by Donald Trump and the people in his so-called war room to overturn the results of the election and what they did to encourage the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. We'll talk with Robert Costa, co-author with Bob Woodward of the new bestseller, Peril. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from HomeWorks Construction, a full-service design-build general contractor that takes a project from concept to completion. Specializing in custom homes and full home remodels, homeworksconstruction.com. Check segment today. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Suvon Lee joins us to talk about vaccines in the schools. Good morning, Suvon. Hi, Catherine. So we're just, what, days away from getting approval of the COVID vaccines for young children, 11 to 5. Sure. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify this mm-hmm. would be federal authorization yes. um, of the COVID vaccine for kids 5 to 11, which is expected to happen sometime next week. Um, and then that would be followed by CDC recommendations for how this should be rolled out and their own guidance for people. And there's lots of planning going on for the rollout of these vaccines. Yeah, well, that's what the DOH and the DOE are saying, that they have been preparing, quote, for months for this eventuality. I know a lot of people, a lot of parents have been anxiously awaiting uh, COVID vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds. Of course, currently it's only available to those 12 and up. So this is a development that has been long awaited, and it looks like it is going to be happening um, uh, next week as far as authorization. And as far as getting the vaccines to Hawaii, we know that Governor David Ige had said earlier in the week that we can expect the first shipment to arrive by uh, November 8th and shortly thereafter it seems that um, some school sites might be hosting vaccine clinics for kids. Right and that's just a week from Monday. Uh, we did talk to some private schools and I know they've already got their plans but the DOE obviously so many schools uh, and uh, lots of logistics to button down. Yes, this is a this is a large scale operation. We have about 119,000 children in five to 11 age group in Hawaii, and about 83,000 of them attend public schools. So the number of schools that have expressed interest in hosting a vaccine clinic, according to the DOH, is about 113 right now, and about 83 of those are DOE elementary schools. Now, 83 elementary schools is about half the number of DOE elementary schools total. So about 50% have expressed interest in hosting a vaccine clinic for their kids. Um, I do know some schools are individually surveying their student body to see which parents might be interested in uh, taking advantage of this opportunity. So it does make sense. Campuses are large. Schools can host or accommodate large groups of people at a time. So if they can roll out the COVID vaccine to their campus uh, population, it seems to be a good thing. Now, the other thing that the department Department of Health and Education um, were telling me was that the uh, the COVID shots would be limited to enrolled students, particularly in the public schools. So unlike some of these other uh, vaccine efforts for the 12 to 17 year olds early earlier in the year that were kind of open to just anybody, including friends, relatives, neighbors, this looks like it might be available only to enrolled students for the time being. And you know there are. Uh, uh Vaccines that will be available at, uh, you know, hospitals, you know, clinics, some doctor's offices. Uh, but there's a lot to consider because you've got to figure, right, the refrigeration and the dosage. Because it's like, what, a third of the, the dose that would normally that, get for an adult? That's current. That's correct. The Pfizer uh, kids vaccine is one third this, the dosage of the one given to those 12 and up. But there's still the two shot dose spaced three weeks apart. And you're absolutely right. Schools are not the only locations for administering these vaccines in the near future. You still do have pop up clinics, community centers, um, pediatrician, some pediatrician offices um, and um, other sites, according to the DOH. And so you did also talk to some parents out there just about where they're feeling, you know, their comfort zone or level. 
right. I think it, it will be really interesting to see how many parents in Hawaii um, line up immediately to get these shots for their kids, how many will wait, and how many of them will, re- will refuse them. Um, I, I, I think time will tell. But yeah, I did, I did talk to a few parents, some of whom were very eager to just get this started right away. And I spoke to one mother who said she plans not to get her kids vaccinated because she is uncertain about the, quote, long-term side effects um, of the vaccines on humans. So that was her uh, statement or her remarks to me. Um, But it it seems generally that a lot of parents are very um, excited for this development to occur and are going to get their kids vaccinated. Yeah, I'm sure to many families it would be a relief. Uh, But thank you so much, Suvon. Sure thing. Thank you. That was education reporter Suvon Lee with today's Reality Check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. today's backyard quiz we asked you to name the author of obaki files ghostly encounters in supernatural hawaii one of a series of obaki file books he was a popular teacher at the university of hawaii at manoa and a lively performer of his own material he loved to collect hawaii's many legends of the supernatural and his published works covered a wide range of topics including mystery hawaiian history and a biography of hawaii astronaut ellison onizuka A historian and folklorist, spooky stories were a way of life for him. He had a radio show aptly titled Chicken Skin, and on occasion was a guest on HBR's Town Square show to talk history and Hawaii haunts. He also once operated a mo'ili'ili cafe called The Haunt and helped to conduct the Honolulu Ghost Walks, which is why the end of October is a good day to remember author and storyteller Glenn Grant which was the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Congratulations to Paul Murakami from Kapolei. You are the winner. And yes, his tours were fabulous. If you have an idea for a quiz for us, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the orthodontic office of Dr. Kimmy Caswell with locations in Honolulu, Kahala, and Mililani. Learn more about Invisalign and Invisalign Teen at hawaiibraces.com. HPR brings you vital information from the islands and around the world. It brings you music that enriches and uplifts. And it keeps you company, providing moments of levity and joy along with the news. Whatever your day looks like, stay connected at home with your smart speaker. It's easy. Just say Play KHPR for HPR 1 or Play KIPO for HPR 2. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Le Jardin Academy, celebrating 60 years, announcing a virtual open house for grades preschool through high school, Saturday, November 6th. Registration at lejardinacademy.org. broadcaster Hal Lewis is being inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame in Chicago today. He is one of a group of legends nominated earlier this year as part of the celebration of the 100-year history of radio. Lewis is better known as J. Akuhe Papule, or just Aku, and he pioneered morning drive magic from the 1960s through the 1980s, delighting listeners with his wit. Remember the April Fool's joke he and his friends played covering the Easter parade that never was? Take a listen. All right, we're back here uh, on the street, all on the Boulevard. And uh, coming up is a float you won't believe, folks. The three network television stations, channel two, four, and nine, have banded together to combine one float for our second annual Easter parade. 
It's a clear picture of six large television screens made of flowers. Tell us about that, Ed. Well, each of these screens represents shows that are shown on these stations. And uh, from our vantage point here, I think I see Joe Moore giving the news on Channel 2. Yeah, that's Joe. Okay, that's the, and that's also the Hawaiian Moving Company logo with rainbow and palm trees <laughs> from Channel 9. I've seen that before. I know I have. And a large picture of the Fonz, and that, of course, is Happy Days on Channel 4. That's what, the Fonz? That's you, Emmy. Come <laughs> on now. <laughs> Wait a minute. No, that's the Fonz. That really is, folks, an amazing example of our TV station's creativity and aloha when it comes to pleasing our kids in an event like this Easter parade. Thank you very much, all of the management and staff at all of the television stations in Hawaii. Uh, the parade that never was. We talked to some of Aku's friends about that day. We start with KSSK's Michael W. Perry. I have no knowledge whatsoever of a practical joke involving an Easter parade and me and Emmy and Aku. Well, Emmy says you were the instigator. <laughs> well, uh, I either blame it on Emmy or Aku, so yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> well, uh, what did you think when you heard he was getting uh, you know these honors? Oh, it's it's so well deserved. No, Aku was a. Uh, he was cantankerous even back then. Uh, I, I worked with him for about six years. I was the afternoon guy, and he was the morning guy. And he was he was a trendsetter. He was a pioneer. He he basically invented what we think of as talk radio right now for you know a, a regular radio station. I mean, they had talk formats, but think about this: back in the fifties, he uh, I don't know if you know the story. He he went to the engineer one day and said, I, I need you to hook up the telephone so that I can put it on the radio. And the engineer looked at him like he was crazy and said, what do you want to do that? And he said, why? Because people love to eavesdrop. Mm. And uh, that's <laughs> that, that was the theory, and I guess it still is, because that's why people love phone calls. They, they want to hear an interaction between two other people on the phone, and kind of like uh, it's kind of like you're listening in. He actually started all of that and did it uh, with some brutally primitive equipment back in the 50s and 60s, and it got better in the 70s, of course. Well, I, as I'm talking to you now, I'm looking down at my timer, which is probably, a, I don't know, <laughs> it's an antique now. <laughs> oh, yeah. We have some antiques at our radio station, as a matter yeah. of fact. I'm well, one of them, come to think of it. Yes. Well, you know, uh I, I know folks think of him, he was a trendsetter, uh, innovator, um, yeah. and he just delighted so many people, so many listeners on their commute. He didn't just delight them, he really ticked them off a lot, and that's, you know, that's half of it. It, it doesn't really, it never mattered to Aku that people, not everybody liked him, because, I mean, you know, nobody likes everybody. And he says, as long as they're listening. So Aku was sort of like uh, the the Listerine mouthwash of radio. You use it and you hate it, but you do it six days a week, you know? Well, everybody remembers the practical joke that uh, you folks played on uh, us, uh, the Easter parade. Well, that was just, uh, that was sort of the crowning glory. He did that, I, I hope you realize, this was just a few months before he passed away. And that was a crowning glory on an old, on a complete career of practical jokes. You've heard of some of them, probably. Uh, I think uh, Bob Siegel's written about them in the uh, newspaper. But he used to, um, he used to totally uh, spoof everybody. He just, uh, he, he just trolled the entire city. Uh, the one time, let's see, he said, uh, yeah, we're going on daylight savings time. It was about the same time, I think, then. We're going on daylight savings time, and everybody believed it, and, and they set their clocks wrong, and, and <laughs> everybody was showing up for work at the wrong time. Uh, he'd, he'd say, I'll be out on the corner of Bishop and King handing out $10 bills between 7 o'clock and 8 o'clock this morning, and then he wouldn't show up. <laughs> he, he wouldn't show up at all. And then the next year, 
on April Fool's Day, he said, I'll be out there at Bishop and King. And everybody went, oh, yeah, right. I'm going to like, I'm going to believe it. And he actually was out there handing out $10 bills. <laughs> he I messed mean, with people. This stuff went on for for uh, for several decades. He did this. So it, uh, it sort of made sense that uh, he would have the non-existent Easter parade for his uh, final his final goodbye. That was Michael W. Perry. We also talked to longtime broadcast engineer Dale Machado. He helped to produce Aku's show and shared uh, his fondest memories about Aku, including the parade and the first day that he met the broadcast giant. I got hired in 1977. I applied for a job there. At first, I didn't know what it was for. And then they told me, you get to work with Aku. And I thought, well, this is kind of a big deal because uh, I remember him growing up, you know. He was on TV. He was on the radio. I used to listen to the Kitty's Corner like everybody else. So, yeah, so I went in, and uh, Earl McDaniel said, well, you got the job, and would you like to meet Aku? <laughs> and I said, uh, okay, sure. And then he comes in. He, just like, he looked just like himself, you know. <laughs> And he sits down and he goes, okay, kid, what do you want to know? <laughs> and I went, up, 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 uh, what's it like working here? <laughs> yeah, I couldn't think of anything. And he said, I don't know what it's going to be like for you. It's great <laughs> for me. I'm a star. <laughs> yeah, and it went on from there, you know. We, we had taped some kind of parade a week before or something. I don't know what it was, Kamehameha Day Parade or whatever. And um, that was like to serve as a kind of a background music, background noise. Sound effects. Sound effects. <laughs> it was just running in a loop, you know. And then every once in a while, I'd have other uh, sound effects that I'd throw in if we had like a um, marching band coming by, you know. And they had a script. This was written out. And they, they would say, oh, here comes, uh, here comes the Kamehameha marching band or, you know, like that. And Farrington, you know, um, Emmy went to Farrington, I think. But... Um, and the grand marshal of the parade was, uh, uh, oh God, I'm Tom blank. Selleck. Tom, Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck. <laughs> yes, right. And it was, you know, there, there's Tom Selleck. Oh my God, yeah, you know, like that. And it, it, it was theater of the mind, the best thing radio can do, and still does. Theater of the mind. And so you have fond memories of that day, but I know uh, oh, a lot of people caught flack. <laughs> oh man, we got flack. We got real flack. Yeah, from the. From uh, the news reports of it, uh, there was a, uh, uh, a story I remember that was that night in the news, and they'd show all the people waiting for the parade, and no, no parade. People, were, they were apparently death threats. I didn't know about that. The guy who was on after the sh after Aku was Dick Wainwright, and he got all kinds of stuff on the air. People calling, but I remember this one. Uh, reporter from, I think it was KITV, who was um, interviewing this little old Japanese lady with her granddaughter, you know, and, and, he, and he goes, well, so what do you think about Aku playing you this trick? And she goes, oh, that Aku, damn him! <laughs> <laughs> and former KITV anchor and television personality Emmy Tamimbang was in on that practical joke and she remembers the backlash, but she shares that her relationship with Aku began as a young child because her father, Tommy Tamimbang, preceded Aku on the radio. Well, my connection to Aku dates back to when I was, you know, a kid living in Kaka'ako, and my father, because he was also on radio, would always tell me, you listen to Aku, listen to Aku, you make sure you pronounce words the way he does, and so that became my my daily lesson from my radio dad. And and then, um, actually, even before that, when my dad preceded Aku on the morning radio, because he used to be on the radio to wake up plantation workers, my dad um, had to put two large chairs together. That was my crib. And so every morning, I would see this, well, course at that time you, you look like a big man with a big nose and he would say good morning to me and um I, I just used to think about that you know um having been so close to Aku even at a time when I didn't know who he was and I didn't know what radio was 
Let's flash forward. April Fool's Day. So I started doing gigs with Michael W. Perry when um, Larry Price was off doing other things. And so I was Emmy on the left and Perry on the right. Anyway, they decided they wanted to do this April Fool's Day joke. And at first I thought, oh, this is going to be cute. This is fun. So we did a whole thing with April Fool's, but doing a serious, serious parade as if it was actually, you know, happening in, in real time. And I would say, oh, there's Tom Selleck. Oh, my God, he took off his mustache. <laughs> Or, or something stupid like that. And it was uh, it was a fun experience with Aku because it was just him, me, and Michael W. Perry. And we didn't have a script. We just sort of did it uh, on the air. And just as it was, we would just look at each other, make up things. And it was fun. I thought it was, you know, I didn't think it was going to be damaging until until I got this letter from this woman who said, I thought Emmy Timenbong was a nice person. And my son and I, who was five years old at the time, sat on Atkinson Drive, and she would tell us what was going on on the avenue. And we would look, and it was, it sounded like it was passing us, but there was nothing. <laughs> um, I have to admit, after that, I really, really felt bad, and somehow every now and then that whole story would come up, the big prank that Aku, um, Michael W. Perry, and Emmy did on April Fool's Day. So um, I try not to remember it, but when people <laughs> do, I just laugh. That was Emmy Timimbong. And, you know, Aku's friends are grateful for their time with him. They say they learn from the best. Michael Perry credits Aku and Ron Jacobs for setting the high bar here in the islands. And so we say mahalo to all of them as we mark 100 years of radio history and the induction of Aku into the Radio Hall of Fame in Chicago. That's it for us today. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa will be taking the mic for an Aloha Friday show. Share your feedback. What do you think about the restrictions being relaxed on Oahu? Comfortable with that? About time? Well, color talk back line. Sound off. 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.